Do you take data on your own behaviors? Would you ever take frequency data on each tear you cried? During today's mail, I talked to behavior analyst and educator who's passionate about taking data on themselves. We discussed neurodiversity, dream projects, self-care, and a little bit about mushrooms, which reminds me of today's behavior bite. Chaga Mushroom Elixir. Every fall, I start a robust regimen of drinks and supplements to get me through the sicky season. Every night, I drink a huge mug of Chaga Mushroom Elixir, two teaspoons of Calm Magnesium, a packet of Emergency, a splash of elderberry syrup, one echinacea tea bag, and a heaping serving of local honey. I'm not sure if it works, but I like to think it helps me manifest all the good vibes to stay healthy for the season. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello, I'm your host, Rosie, and I'm so excited to introduce today's dinner guest. I had the absolute pleasure of taking a two-part course on Ascent with this person in 2020 that I swear gave me the language and science behind everything that I was feeling for a while. Since then, I followed their work in sexual behavior, It's an absolute honor to welcome Warner Leland to dinner. Hi, Warner. Hi, thank you so much. So happy that you're here. And little little extra intro story. We actually got to meet in June at BABA, and I'll just never forget it because I think I broke out into a cold sweat once I realized who you were. (laughs) Uh, because I just remember this stunning person in like a plaid skirt and pink hair was like, hi, are you Rosie? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I always get nervous when anyone like already knows me. And then once I realized who you were, I'm like, uh, oh my God. Hi. Uh." (laughs) Oh, that is so silly. That was such a good conference. I feel like I met so many people who I like have great respect and love for from the internet, right? Who we've never yeah. actually gotten to say hi in person. It was um, just a wonderful conference overall. I do feel kind of creepy a lot of the time because I'm like, oh gosh, I feel like I know who you are. Is it weirder <laughs> to say something or weirder to not say something? I usually err on the side of of being maybe creepy, but trying to connect. <laughs> definitely. I I definitely know a lot of people, obviously, like I know you more from like the professional side, but on Instagram, I know a lot of people from their names. And so my friends that go to conferences with me think it's funny because I can point out a ton of people and be like, oh yeah, that is Warner and their screen name is blah, blah, blah. And they're like, how do you keep that? And I was like, that's what's in my brain. That's just, that floats around in my brain. Um, which is good when I want to, you know, go meet people. Cause I'd be like, I know you. And even if I can't, if I don't know their like real first name, I can just use their, their handle. I said screen name. We don't say that anymore. That's, you know, I, I like the antiquated language. I grew up with screen name. I for sure still say screen name, (laughs) but thank you. That's like empowering me. Cause I feel like that is the space where I get stuck is I'm like, oh dang, I feel embarrassed that I know your handle and I have no idea. (laughs) Like, I bet you have a real name in the real world. (laughs) Uh, say what it was. Why, yeah. I went with Rosie, so that's pretty easy for everyone. 
but back to like antiquatedness, like, I guess I wasn't quite processing my history of like meeting people online, but I remember doing that even on, um, you know, AIM, America Online Mm -hmm, Instant mm -hmm, Messenger for mm -hmm. anyone too young (laughs) to not know that, um, that I would sit there and, and talk to strangers online too. Definitely. I was moderately practicing safe internet behavior, not what it is today. Um, I think I only went as far as telling people like my age, my gender, which is, that's funny, but, um, and then the state, I never went any further than that. Oh, I was allowed to use it. So my parents kept it pretty under lockdown, but I was allowed to use it after my father had verified that I had created a fake name, a fake identifying information, fake state that I lived in. So people oh, wow. on the internet thought that I was Kayla Membu from California, because to me that sounded like a very like surfer name, like why yeah. As, at 11, but I was like, yeah, I'm definitely an 11-year-old surfer from California. My name is Kayla. Oh my gosh. I my love life it. is like carefree ease waves. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely silly. Oh, man. I was a, like a latchkey kid. So um, sorry, Dad, if this makes it into the podcast. <laughs> but I just had free access for a few hours until my parents came home. Um, but at least, I mean, credit to like baby Rosie that I still had like the wherewithal to not be like, hi, I live on <laughs> such and such street. Please come Here's over. My social. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because I was also, I was a rule follower for the most part and very scared of a lot of things. And so, yeah, I was like, (laughs) I'll tell you, I live in the state of Maine. Good luck finding me. (laughs) Okay, so let's jump into our meal. Uh, First is today's amuse-bouche, which is truly a chef's whim. In the pre-recording questionnaire, you had wrote just selfie data as a topic that you love to discuss. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, that's great. I wonder what past me meant by the things that I wrote. Um, Yeah, I love selfie data in general. I've been feeling pretty passionate. Maybe I'll do a class at some point. So I like charting my own behavior. I'm not always super consistent, although I was recently introduced to a few different kinds of data collection systems that are a little bit more mobile to take with you. Everybody, I feel like, has like great apps these days. So I'm, I'm trying to see if I can increase it. I've, well, I've been really interested in things that let me timestamp. Um, I'm pretty excited about the potential to essentially like take that data and move it over to a cumulative response recorder, essentially. Um, so that's cute. I finally found something that does that, and that's nice. I don't know. I like being able to track my own behavior in general. I'm really passionate about, I think, like self-discovery through data because my memory is trash. Like I've got nothing if it's not written down. And um, August Stockwell and I got to present some crying data we took for a year. Well, we we haven't talked to Tensi probably. I was like, I don't know if I've ever told you about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, it was really great. There was somebody running a study that really let you sort of like self-define what you were calling crying, how you were taking your data, what you were taking your data on. But it was a really nice like outer behavior to track what we might call Mm -hmm. like private events. Um, If you're into that, like private public split uh, in your theoretical framework. 
which I'm, right. I'm not so much these days, but it was, <laughs> it was like a nice visual cue, right? Like, Ooh, can I attend to like, what would I tact as a feeling here? What's sort of like the contingency mm. um, occurring in this moment? What am I feeling in my body along with this? And then was able to put it on a standard acceleration chart and had some really uh, great outcomes from that experience. It was it was a cool time. And a lot of the things that I like had myths about, about myself, I found out mm. were not true based on what was actually <laughs> showing up. Um, so that was a really cool experience. Uh, I know in the sort of like sexual behavior recording world, I had gotten to do a couple of posters for... I can't even remember what it was. It was like a small campus conference at the Chicago school here in Chicago, um, but had also done some self-data collection on vocal exercises for lowering lowering your voice without having like testosterone or any sort of uh -huh. um, uh -huh. medically induced changes. So, you know, some trans folks have access to hormones that do then have an impact uh, on vocal production some do not mm -hmm. and uh have been really interested in all the folks that like have exercises that they purport as being helpful for either like moving the pitch up or pitch down for your voice so I was trying some of them out and then taking uh just like voice recorded and then running it through a machine that put numbers to uh, you know what it was hearing and that was really interesting to take a look at some of the different interventions and see like oh gosh what's actually having an impact on the way that I sound yeah. um yeah I don't know I've just always been super passionate about it I think it's a great way to learn about yourself and um, Abigail Calkin wrote a really cool paper on um, charting inner behavior that has mm -hmm. also been really inspiring for me for trying to find some of some of those ways to be measuring what you know folks might on the surface believe is not an observable behavior per se, um, but that I think is really valuable to count. So I don't know. I'm just always excited when other people are excited about self-discovery self-analysis I love it you just gave us like so much information so like first off like the crying data I think is so interesting because yeah because you might miss it you might I I just wonder I I have so many questions sorry I'm like stumbling but like the difference between maybe feeling like you're gonna cry like would you go that far back or would you wait mm -hmm. until you're just welling up or would you have to wait until like one, at least one tier falls? I mean, so many questions. And then being able to track that. I track a lot of my own behaviors. I have like a, like a cycle tracking app, but I put a lot of other data in it because I find um, the week before I have my period, I'm very anxious, which isn't a common, I think it is common, but it's not commonly talked about as a PMS symptom. Um, but I would notice I would get that anxiety and that like everybody hates me, mm -hmm. like true, like everybody hates me right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And in the past, it has gotten very bad. So I'm like, okay, let me track it because if I can link it to something else, like, oh, you're just going to get your period, like, you're fine. <laughs> Not everybody hates you. Then that that's better for me to like conceptualize. But yeah, that's really cool data. And then, oh, the voice. Yeah. Voice changing. Definitely like the recordings I've seen mostly on like uh, popular media type of stuff of, of actors, like using the voice recordings or on TikToks um, to like track their progression. I think that's really cool because 
you don't always see that inner inner change and inner inner behavior every single day but then when you can mm-hmm. line that all up like a month and months in a row or like a full year later and see the difference then it's like oh wow like I've come so far yeah the vocal exercises were really interesting because there was like degradation fall off you could track across time too that was fascinating to me like per exercise um, I was putting stuff on standard acceleration charts so it was nice to be able to actually see acceleration shifts or exercise. Yeah, so interesting. So many different ways to record things. And I was doing per tier for my crying data because uh, I was really struggling. Yeah, I was struggling to have that operational definition, right? Of like, well, what yeah. counts, you know, is my magnitude important? And I wasn't crying a ton at that time, you know, in that season of my life. So it was just a click per per tier. I think I maxed out at 86 in a day, I want to say. Wow roughly yeah Yeah, but it was usually like one or two and that was it Mm, okay yeah okay yep that period data is so resonant yeah I Mm -hmm. also like a week to two weeks before any sort of menstrual cycle yeah I get well so I all I get intense sensory overwhelm and overload Mm -hmm. so everything that's already a sensory issue for me feels heightened like everything Mm. is just a thousand times worse um yeah and then get in that really comparable kind of anxiety right like it's very yeah. easy to get locked onto some stories that <laughs> two weeks later I'm like that was silly of me um but at the time felt really real and really impactful right. so it has been really helpful well, especially two weeks later like in the true sense of the cycle two weeks later you're like the best of the best <laughs> I am a goddess like <laughs> I am an absolute higher power. Like I definitely <laughs> swing. Not every, not every cycle, because you know it's never regular. But like there are times I'll be driving. I'm like, look at me. I am the best person in the world. So <laughs> it's just wild coming from like everybody hates me, you know, and more negative things that I won't put on a recording. Mm-hmm. Um, to like, wow, I'm the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so funny. Ugh, yeah, human life yeah. is so interesting. So interesting. It also makes me so interested in the ways we try and look for consistent patterns in data and the way that people are showing up without taking into account like cycles across time, because Mm -hmm. how unrealistic to not be taking into (laughs) account like what your body is doing and like the whole organism responding, Mm -hmm. Um, but meaning that like really, I I think truly, right, like whole organism um, Mm -hmm. with all of our, our cycles and patterns and impactful bits hormones included. (laughs) Uh, Definitely. Uh, I could go off on so many tangents, but I'll just say one, I remember having this breakthrough with a caregiver. um, Once we started lining up all, all of the behaviors that the young learner was having and we started like lining it all up and she's like, I don't know. She's like crying all the time. And then her like mood swings wildly. And she's like, it's very much like she's starting her cycle, but she's only 11. And so I was like, oh, we like put it together. I was like, she's in that very uncomfortable stage of she hasn't started her menstrual cycle yet, but she's like pre. And so you get all of the like symptoms without the full, like the actual body cycle type thing. I don't know how to explain it sciency, but once we figure that out, mom was able to treat it just like she was PMSing and kind of, you know, hold her closer and provide more downtime. And it just, it just 
got so much better. I was like, yeah, just treat her like she's on her period. And yoga. <laughs> then she did. And the girl's just like, oh, mm. yay. I love you know, mom, mom and daughter time or whatever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've had a few different people report, you know, really comparable things with clients to me. I've seen it in my own world. And, you know, it just makes me think about like all of the ways in which you might try and punish or restrict something where it's like, I think maybe just like a little bit of extra care is needed here. Like yeah. that alone could make everything a whole lot easier for all parties involved. I would hope it would be where everybody would naturally lean, but you know? Yeah. If only. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's jump into our appetizers. So for our first appetizer, for everyone, I always ask, how did you get into behavior analysis? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, so I I think sort of fell into it um, as I do like most things in life. Um, I don't know. I felt I feel like I've spent a lot of my life like really under aversive control Um, and to my credit, like saying yes to things that move me in the direction of things I care about um, and things that end up being values, even if I can't like totally articulate them at the time, Um, you know, so through a string of just like trying to leave situations that weren't really working for me anymore, found my way to a master's program and uh, just had stumbled on one because I was like, oh, here's one that's like a few hours away from my family. So it's giving me some space and distance, but also I can get back home if I'm really needed Um, and ended up at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and, you know, like genuinely just through pure luck and circumstance, it ended up being a really incredibly meaningful program for me. Um, So I think that was like shortly after uh, Dr. Murbitz had been in charge and um, so much of like the precision teaching lineage, the gold Mm -hmm. diamond lineage um, uh, were so present in the way that things were taught there. And uh, I was given so much freedom to pursue things that I was really interested in. So like they let me do my electives outside of the department. So I got to study uh, sexual health and education in the psych department instead. And um, I really just kind of got to like choose my own adventure, got to do my master's (laughs) thesis on speed dating. Like, you know, so cool. Oh yeah, it was really good. And then, I don't know, I think just started again saying like yes to things and having the luxury of being able to say yes to things that were, you know, really cool. I, I feel like yeah. I've been incredibly spoiled in terms of just like great opportunities showing up since then. Um, yeah. Lucky, but haphazard. Yeah. I wish we could like string together everyone's first sentence after I asked that question, because this is not real data, but made up data. I I feel like it's like 90% say I fell into it. That's the first sentence (laughs) because it's so true. Mm -hmm. Well, I fully never thought that I could be a scientist, right? Like stars in my eyes about the idea that like people could conduct research that felt so far away from like possibilities or possibility models for me when I was younger. Um, My parents are very lovely humans, but I think also humans that did not have a lot of possibility models themselves. Mm -hmm. So just like absolutely no way to support a vision Mm -hmm. like that, right? That's like science is something that scientists do. (laughs) We are not scientists. (laughs) There you have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so like my mom had been encouraging me to go into a teaching for most of my life. She's a teacher mm-hmm. and incredible at it. And my dad is, they're both very behavior analytic people. I think that's truly yes. a part of it too, <laughs> right? Um, so much like really smart, really behavioral structure mm-hmm. to the way that they run their lives, the way that they show up in the world. Um, yeah, but I think like just sort of had no way to point me to this if I had known mm. it and wanted it um, right. at the time, right? So uh, yeah, just feel like really lucky to have gotten to end up in a space where I feel like I'm getting to do things that like child me would have thought was incredibly cool. Yeah, that's amazing. I really vibe with people that are like acting in a way that more closely aligns to aligns with maybe who we truly were at like twelve. Mm-hmm. before before everything else happened before puberty like true puberty teenage you know college a young adult you know trying to fit into a certain way and masking that like as we move into our like 30s we're coming back to like truly our essence of who we were mm-hmm. and acting in a way that just brings us closer to that is just so exciting because you can see it, or at least I can, like, I can see, like, when you talk like that, like, you light up, like, you are completely, I know no one listening can see you, but, like, you light up, it's, like, I visually see, like, lights, like, beams of lights, like, coming off, because you just look so excited. Well, how lucky, right, you know, like, who, <laughs> no. who gets to, who gets to count behaviors while people are speed dating with one another, like, that's so silly, and so great, that's like, so what a delightful world to have stumbled into. So kind of on the same premise, um, our second appetizer, I wanted to ask, what does like neurodivergence and neurodiversity affirming mean to you? That's a great question. So, and a big question. Um, So I am autistic. I have ADHD and PTSD, and I feel like everything is informed by my lens, right? Um, uh, I think like personal experience makes things feel extra resonant uh, to some degree. But yeah, in terms of neurodivergence uh, and what it means to me, I don't know. So like definition wise, right, is like this this sort of conceptual diverging or shifting from a quote unquote normed way of showing up in the world. So I really value it as like a search term for maybe finding people that are going to be affirming to you or with you, Um, maybe finding like some people that you resonate with. Uh, But in terms of like identity or label, it very much feels like a shorthand in a lot of ways, right? Like it's trying to to point to a, a pretty complex like way of showing up in the world and of showing up in a world that exists because of systems that people and their behaviors <laughs> have brought to bear. So I don't know, like I, I value it um in terms of I guess if it feels valuable to have a self-descriptor or um, something that's functioning to like bring some clarity some unity some ease uh and then I think forever also on the flip side of that is 
and what is this society that's making it like really hard to just like exist um you know uh i'm very much a proponent of the social model of disability and this Mm -hmm. idea that like uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps something physiologically divergent is occurring. I don't have like the measurement really to study this beyond, you know, what is very much like a, a verbal behavior of like a observing you and your environment kind of assessment that folks use right now. Very flawed. Um, you know, I'm forever going to be a proponent of of shift the environment. Also, I don't know. I feel like when talking about neurodivergence and neurodiversity affirmation that a lot of the activism that you come into contact with or the people speaking about it and using that language still very often show up in the same sort of like microcosm of modalities Mm -hmm. of the rest of the world where it's like white privilege still shows up in that space, Mm -hmm. you know, cis Mm -hmm. privilege still shows up in that space. Um, And so when I'm thinking about neurodiversity affirmation, I think it's feeling really important to me to be cognizant of the ways in which using that context as functioning. It still could be like excluding Yeah, well, excluding, but also then I think without considering the ways in which oppression is interlocking, which harms are interlocking, which, you know, folks may be disproportionately impacted by, uh, you know, ableism is, is really doing a disservice and I think is sometimes under talked about. So to me, it feels like a little bit impossible to talk about just neurodiversity affirmation without also talking about like a pretty radical like anti-oppression framework, right? Like a really strong sense of compulsion that, you know, so important for us to be working on shifting our practices at the individual level in terms of increasing affirmation um, for folks who may not show up in like a kind of socially normed kind of way, but also really taking it upon ourselves to consider ourselves co-responsible for shifting that environment on a broader social level as well. That's a really good point. Yeah. I feel like it's definitely thrown around more recently like as a buzzword without the action behind it you know like you could label anything compassionate you could label Mm -hmm. anything as you know nd affirming but if you're not doing like the work to actually make it then it it kind of diminishes the message and i think you're really digging at a larger issue obviously like the systemic issues in our society in general um but then even in the niche of of behavior analysis and aba that yeah it's like opening up so many more questions in my head right now i mean for me i look at it as a like a work in progress that like mm-hmm. it is a journey it's never like i am neurodiversity affirming it's that like I am working towards that and I'm continuously working towards that um, both for the people in my life but then also for myself because I also believe it's a journey that I'm on to figure out I am neurodivergent that's the only word so far that fits 
but yeah, it's just, it, it's the same way that people use like cultural humility of like, it's not an end point. It's not like, okay, you finally took your 37th course. Now you are, you know, culturally aware. It's like, no, like we as humans just have to constantly be on this journey and choose actions that bring us closer to those values without stamping like a label on ourselves of saying like, we did it now. Like the world is better. I did this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and for me, it's always about sort of like the function of that language, right? Like, is this allowing you to approach more information, shifting your behavior, taking accountability for the spaces where you're causing harm um, and there can be behavior shifts for what you're doing? Um, or is it, you know, some avoidance of like, Ooh, I feel uncomfortable with this topic. I took my CE course, <laughs> done, did the thing. Um, maybe have like a little bit of alleviation of this, that discomfort there. You know, it could be serving so many different functions. Uh, but for me, I also have so much appreciation for and see so much value in uh, out of the field of nursing folks that are talking about cultural safety mm. now, right? Mm. This idea that like we're still so centering our behavior and our perceptions of our own behavior um, when we're talking about like, are we being affirming? <laughs> are we being mm-hmm. humble? Um, and not always having a great way to ask, like, is this directly translating to safety as self-defined by the people Mm -hmm. who I am serving and who I'm sharing space with and who I'm in community with. Um, I really appreciated getting to see Dr. Shala Lai present earlier this year Mm -hmm. on some models uh, that she and colleagues have used to uh, actually measure social validity, but not to be the people directly doing it, um, you know, because of that implicit power and pressure saying like, am I affirming you? (laughs) Yes, right? Like, I'm affirming you. Um, Yeah, and I really, I I think, would, like, call on us to think about the power dynamics in our relationship, even as we are taking social validity and, you know, Mm -hmm. asking and questioning, like, am I existing in a way that's affirming? Um, Also really questioning, like, am I in a position to be the one to ask those questions and get valid Mm -hmm. data in that moment? And if not, you know, what steps maybe could we take to shift that so people have space to report um, and feel safer to report with some honesty about like whether this is meeting their needs or not. I really like that. I'm going to, when I listen to this again, I'm going to take a ton of notes of new stuff to look into. That was a lot of heavy, good, good, heavy stuff, but we are at our palate cleanser. So a little lighthearted question. What has been the best thing that you've eaten this week? Oh my goodness. I had an amazing pistachio risotto from this really lovely pizza shop in our neighborhood. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's got a lot of cheese. I had never had pistachio in like a pasta dish before. It's changed Mm -hmm. my life. I've ordered it probably like three different times this month. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, hands down the best thing I've eaten this week. It It was pretty magical. Pistachio pesto is really good. We have um, a pizza place kind of near us, Pizza Barboni. Pizza Barboni, it's hard to say. But they do a pistachio pesto pizza uh, with like arugula and a lemon aioli type thing on it. That sounds amazing. So good. I get it every time. Yeah, this is from Anto 
pizza. And you have me looking now because I'm like, what is this cheese? Like there's a magical <laughs> cheese. And I know it's not just ricotta. I don't know if I'll find it. I'll let you know. But wow. Okay. <laughs> truly, truly life-changing, this dish. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love the power of food too. Like it really does bring your mood up and like bring people together. And I love it so much. Okay. Speaking of food, we are on to our entrees. Our first entree is if there were no barriers or constraints, what would your dream project be? Goodness. No idea how to, how big to go on this one, right? I feel like I have a thousand dream projects all of the time um, and try to just see which ones end up sticking. Um, for a long time, I have really dreamed of being able to have a like behavior analysis coursework, but that's specifically uh, rooted in development across the lifespan, sex Ooh, education yes. embedded mm-hmm. into the coursework. Um, so some like specialized coursework. And now I have so much gratitude and value for folks that invest in continuing education. And there is so much to know, like so much mm-hmm. to know um, that wow, would be so cool to see it have sort of its own specialized course of study. So in my mind, that would be amazing to be able to have that with specified practicum placements um, and uh, for it to like meet criteria of uh, verified course sequences, but then also maybe like the ASACT requirements. I've been Mm -hmm. thinking on that for a while. Like, is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. Starting to see some people do some continuing education focused in that. And that is super exciting. Um, Yeah, I know Nicholas Mayo uh, has courses going that I think are pretty much in alignment with ASECT requirements over at uh, Study Notes ABA, which is super cool to see. Um, Yeah, and some great continuing education popping up from a few different places at this point. But oh my gosh, like dedicated study sounds like it would be amazing that really does I think like first off like understanding child development is so important and that's really a missing piece in a lot of BCBA's like history of learning um, whether courses or uh, what they did for undergrad that a lot of times when I'm talking to other practitioners I'm finding myself first explaining the development piece of like, that is what a five-year-old does. <laughs> like mm-hmm, that is just mm-hmm. five-year-olds or that mm-hmm. is just 10-year-olds or, you know, going back to like hormones, like they are just pre-hormonal, you know, like just the very, very bare minimum of it. Um, and uh, uh, Maddie, Dr. Maddie Serta, she'll talk about that a lot too, because she does have extensive history in like child development and special education. Um, and it's like frustrating because sometimes you feel like you're like banging your head against the wall of like, that's just development. <laughs> but yeah, I would be in full support of that project if you go to do it (laughs) right like the dream one day and then also very like selfishly really dream of being able to like because the applied work is so important and I really value it but I'm such a nerd at heart right like it would be so (laughs) rad to have behavioral sex education behavioral sex research uh Mm. things that extend beyond you know like the the common 
in mm-hmm. applied things that people tacked as like inappropriate quote unquote right. um behaviors uh, and sexual behaviors yeah because so very often that's like i'm in place education mm-hmm. right very rare that something like actually genuinely harmful is occurring but the context is probably not an appropriate one mm-hmm. And there's just so much more to study beyond that, like so much more that would be like phenomenal to be able to do single subject design around. Mm. Um, Yeah, that would absolutely be a dream. Yeah, that would be amazing and so needed. I don't want to open the can of worms of how how little uh, we know about sexual behavior and that it's so like taboo and not talked about. Uh, I I do like a group mentorship with Meg Solomon. And for a while we were getting questions of just how do I talk to the parent who anytime you talk about a, I won't use all the words, but just a basic human need, a basic human behavior. How do Mm -hmm. I talk to them like that? And we're like trying to help them come up with like different scripts that they can use where you really just want to be like, that's just a basic human need. Like they're going to do it regardless. And so if you don't give them like time, time and space, like you said, um, if you don't give them where they can do that appropriately, they're going to find other ways to do it. Yeah. It's a lot to be asking anybody to do though. Right. Because like so much broad shame, uh, and, such a great lack of sex education. Like, I don't know what your sex education access was like growing up, asking people to have the capacity to be able to support in this way when Mm -hmm. very likely they may not have had, you know, medically accurate comprehensive sex education or any sex education themselves is so much to be asking. Like, I can remember like almost all of it because of how humorous it was of like what are you trying to tell us I remember uh one young woman in my class uh finally like challenged the teacher because I won't go off on all of the absurdities of it but they were explaining how and they they were very adamant that heavy petting leads to sex and there is no in between there is no stopping so if you get Uh, that far you will have sex and we are in maybe eighth grade. God love her because to like just flat out say like it doesn't because I've done that and I didn't have sex because I'm not ready, but it doesn't. And the teacher's just like, whoa, 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 what? You know, like all cartoon. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I'm just like in the oh. back of like, wow, like good for you. Like I support you. I think I clapped yeah. or something. But that's your classmate showing up with the data, right? Like, right? yeah. <laughs> some self-study here back to our selfie data and they do not support uh this hypothesis you're touting absolutely true uh, yeah yeah okay i guess kind of on on the subject of misunderstandings uh what is something that people tend to misunderstand about you or are surprised to find out about you I feel like people don't tell me, right? So it's a little bit hard to like predict or name. Um, It's really interesting. I think autistic people are 0% surprised (laughs) to know that I'm autistic. Um, Neurotypical people, stunt, right? Like, but how? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's always a really fascinating divide 
that shows up. Um, yeah. But you got through school. How could you be autistic? Oh you got through school How? and you and you're and you're talking to me. And you're talking to me. Absolutely wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's so real. Yeah. That and then like gender related things, I feel like are the mm-hmm. common things that come up all the time, right? I uh I feel like I used to feel a lot of pressure to, you know, like went through childhood and a lot of pressure to like perform femininity and then Mm. like really coming into some language around a gender, I guess is the best label for identity. Just like not really Mm. feeling any sort of ties to gender whatsoever. I assumed it was fake for everybody. Apparently people are really attached to theirs. A lot of people, um, you know, actually believe in it as a phenomenon. So Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Like, that was a fascinating thing to show up and to learn, but then felt a lot of pressure pressure to like perform uh, mm. what gets coded as like androgyny for people at that point too. And I feel mm. like, I don't know, in the past couple of years, I've really let go of a lot of that. So it's been interesting to see a lot of, a lot of that like misgendering crop back up as I'm shifting mm. into a space where I'm just sort of like, letting myself dress for joy letting myself do what I want because I like it um I you know I think I had gotten to the space where I need to do this a lot where I assume that like if I've learned a lesson the whole world has learned it along with me (laughs) and I'm like wait we're still doing this like that's fascinating that this is still here oh I forgot Mm -hmm. about it I thought we were all done with this so yeah so goofy but that's a part of my world again now yeah Yeah. I mean, I think the gender piece is so interesting and I have, I have limited knowledge myself besides what I know I have encountered and, and worked through. Um, I used to joke, joke. I don't know if that's the right, (laughs) if that's the right verb. Uh, but growing up, I used to fluctuate, but it was just like, oh, she just wants to be like a tomboy. Like, but I had a whole name. Like I was like, this is, I'm Andy today. Like I'm Andy. Uh, killer. So my brother's uh, second child, um, you know, was like, I, I'm, I'm feeling kind of like non-binary, like, and they are still trying to figure out, they kind of uh, went through a couple different names um, and pronouns and, and they are free to continue changing whatever way. And I think it's really interesting. Like, so once that happened, I remembered my childhood and I'm like, I think my parents are very inclusive, very loving and all of that, but I don't think the world or anyone really had the language. And so for, uh, my nibbling, uh, if anyone doesn't know, that's the gender, um, inclusive term for like your sibling's child is a nibbling. Um, they get to decide consistently like where they want to show up, how they want to show up. Whereas for me, it was just like, well, she's just, you know, she just is pretending to be Andy for a little bit. And then, you know, maybe she's the brother, maybe she's the sister, you know, but it was always in that black and white mm-hmm. um, that I'm like, I'm so excited for, for them and how they get to really explore that. And I'm not saying I'm like stifled and I wish I was Andy or anything like that. But I think I would have been able to explore that more and explore like what that meant. Like, why was I trying to be Andy? Um, Was it because I had a crush on a boy named Andy? (laughs) Who really knows? Um, 
But all I can do now is like reflect back as a 36 year old instead of try to figure it out and process it at like a young age, if that makes mm. any sense. I'm oh, like, absolutely. Right. Okay. <laughs> like the possibility models now are huge and it's so interesting, right? Cause it's just like human variability, uh, mm-hmm. but it's been so squashed. And I think people aren't totally cognizant of all of the dimensions that it's been swa- squashed across, right? Like we talk about binary gender and then now the really progressive thing is like a non-binary gender, or like a third option, which is so silly because there are so many dimensions along which mm-hmm. your experience could flex, right? Like, you know, perhaps you are experiencing like pretty binary experiences that are fluctuating for you from day to day. Maybe it's fluctuating across time. Maybe you have zero experience Mm. of gender like me. I remember I just being like really a little bit like eye roll and almost slightly offended that people cared about my gender when I would as a child and and would be like I'm an artist (laughs) like (laughs) why are you attending to the very important salient cues here (laughs) artist like why do you care about this really boring like why um yeah I don't know so silly so many different ways that like experiences of what we call gender can present for people and can shift across time that you know chalk it on my list of projects if there were no constraints would really love to be studying Uh, you know people's just like self-description self-identity for the day Mm. across time um Mm -hmm. you know maybe we'll get to that research project at some point (laughs) um but my suspicion is that you know current hypothesis is that it's probably variable yeah (laughs) probably just variable and yeah like what an interesting space to be not shamed or to not derive shame Mm -hmm. from that experience and to like try and squash down or stifle down any sort Mm -hmm. of expectation or even like diminish it or minimize it to this concept of just like pretend play (laughs) or just pretend playing this thing right now but to allow folks to just like experience what they experience and to Mm -hmm. tact it as clearly and holistically as they have the capacity to you know like there's a lot of power in that for me like I'm just presenting a a, as accurate attack as I can right now based on you know the what, what my verbal community is shaping up and I feel like we're moving into a space where there's just a lot more verbal flex for like clarity and precision and then space to like flex around that and it'll be okay you know if those things change too and yeah love that yeah. Yeah. I am very hopeful for like the future and like the next, the next couple generations, you know, like as we progress, like through things, I know there's a lot of like scary things out there and a lot of hate out there, but I do see a lot of progress and a lot of people changing um, and, and learning however they need to learn. Like uh, the, the first summer up uh, with my brother's family, I'm very protective of my family. And so whenever anyone kind of questioned, uh, I was I was like, I don't know everything, but I'm jumping in before <laughs> because I'm like, no, you need to, you know, and like my first go to is like, why does it matter? Just call them whatever they want to be called. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't always work for everyone. And so mm-hmm. then I've now like I have like tiered model of like how to explain it to people just but like to to me back to like what you're saying 
of like once you learn something like hasn't the rest of the world learned this and so to me it's like yeah I learned this they want to be called you know they them like just do it like it's not it's not that hard we learn new things every day just do it like if I you know like you learn my name and then like okay so here's a super simple explanation so I was actually named Kathleen with a C um, and my middle name is Rose and I go by Rose slash Rosie and people do that you know like people call me that and it's not it's not I mean not to equate an entire gender I identity with a name but it's like you just you learn new information and you change your behavior it's not that hard Mm, yeah so real but another one of those things like right so much a function of colonization and of power because as much as we call this progress right now like expansive what we would tact as expansive gender and gender identity is a part of community has been such a part of indigenous practice forever in variable Mm -hmm. spaces um and even the language that we use for it and to talk about it is is not totally precise like I don't know that we even have all of the language to be able to to accurately map on to folks practices um yeah like growth in the very stifled and squashed context that we have um and important right that that's occurring and also another one of those things for me that forever feels like very interlocking with uh, paying attention to like, how are we here? Why are we here? Who are these systems serving? And who do you want your systems to be serving? Um, yeah. And I don't know, forever my hope that we could get to a space where it's just like flexibility and liberation for folks. And uh, I don't know, letting people have good lives, uh, actively investing in people having good lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does remind me, I think you posted, uh, it was probably a while ago, but you posted uh, about mushrooms. I realized that Ooh. like you really enjoy like mushrooms. It seems like whenever you ah, post. They're so cool. Uh, <laughs> They're a fascinating species. Yeah. Uh, but there was one that I forget the numbers, but it was like, you know, like we're so stuck in like, you know, two genders, three genders, whatever. And then this mushroom has like 237 genders and they like engage in reproduction in 700 ways or something like that. And I was like, mm-hmm. you can't even wrap your brain. Or, I mean, like you can try, but like <laughs> in the, in the, construct of you know society's construct like to wrap your brain around of like I could believe yeah that like humans have that many genders quote unquote but like people are like no black and white yeah it's so fascinating yeah mushrooms are a fascinating experience of an organism in the world in general like they're so atypical from how you know many other species show up um yeah so that's a really cool one and those numbers i think were in the like ah gosh i want to say over fifty thousand, but i'm gonna have to fact check myself Mm -hmm. in terms of like ways Mm -hmm. that like sexes show up in in that one specific species like incredibly cool right so incredibly cool to think about um all of that variability but yeah, so, so silly to try and act like that's just not there existing in the right. world, you know. <laughs> uh, we could probably have a, an entire course on, on mushrooms because, yeah, they are, they're so interesting. And there's like this weird phenomenon that like, 
I find that a lot of people experience the same mushrooms at the same time, even if you're in different parts of the world, which is like Mm -hmm. wild. So my husband will uh, take pictures of the mushrooms in our backyard and his friends that don't live anywhere near us will have like the same mushrooms and so weird. But we are at dessert and I don't know, do you have mushrooms for dessert? I bet you could, but... Maybe maybe a nice truffle. Yeah, I'm fact checking yeah. myself now and seeing a wide variety of number uh, of different sexes. So we're gonna have to like some follow up information and and eight billion mushroom gender hyperlinks. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fully fully could see a whole course on mushroom gender one on one. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, you can link up with. There's so many like foragers, and then like um, I drink. Uh, like four sigmatic which has mushrooms and a lot of their uh, i mean that's how it was started was like mushroom types drinks but it's usually like uh i drink like a chaga especially around now because it helps with like immunity um i guess you could do chocolate and reishi reishi mm-hmm. yeah that's that's the dessert love it for our first dessert um i was wondering how do you balance life and work and like practicing self-care as you shake your head no. Yeah, as I shake my head now, I'm, I'm not a good person to ask this question to. Maybe I am. It's forever a work in progress. I feel like I'm really struggling with it. Um, I think probably the greatest gift I've been given around this uh, was a couple of years ago at a conference was just sort of like talking about that forever struggle, right? Uh, with mm-hmm. Dr. Emily Sandoz, who is, and talking about the way that like, I guess what people might describe as like my ADHD symptoms manifest, but the ways that I get really stuck and have long periods of time where I just like cannot get things done and then we'll knock out three week of t- weeks of tasks in an afternoon like it's nothing mm-hmm. but it's you know when is that one afternoon going to show up again it's so hard to predict right. and she was like what if you gave yourself permission for that to be okay what could that look like if you just like rolled with it mm-hmm. um and I have been shaping my life around that advice since then um so nice. you know I've shifted the work that I'm doing um and you know so much privilege to be able to have this amount mm-hmm. of autonomy in my life um and for a long part of my life like absolutely this would not have been accessible to try and make happen in the way that I have access to now so I feel really lucky that I I have like a little bit more flexibility and I'm, I've been doing more like stepping into roles and tasks where I can, you know, just sort of roll with like, this is going to be a really low Mm -hmm. output day and I'm going to do my Mm -hmm. best, uh, you know, but what I'm showing up with is what I'm showing up with. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's still forever a struggle. And I think partially a struggle for me because I love what I do. I am mm-hmm. the reason I'm overcommitted is because every single thing that people are like, hey, want to get involved in this? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I've booked like 17 humans worth of tasks in one week. Right. And it's like, ooh, that was not feasible. So um yeah, I think I'm still in the process of learning how to be selective about where I'm putting my energy uh, doing my best I've been putting a lot of work into like giving people the information they need up front um, for like informed consent to invite me into their projects 
that's point that's very much like, hey, yes, yeah. I would love to do this. It's going to fall out of my brain. So if you want to send me like three different text message prompts a day, <laughs> um, amazing. <laughs> if you don't want to do that, it very well could be something that like off, yeah. fully falls out of my brain that we're even doing this, <laughs> even though I love it and I'm passionate about it. Um, but it's like I have a very hard time in my working memory, holding on to things. Um, so yeah, just trying to have like a little bit more transparency around that, like, hey, here are my limitations and barriers and mm -hmm. struggles. Um, and if that is not something that you have space for, like 3000% understand. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, just trying to make time for things that I enjoy where I can. So just getting a lot more downtime, more time with my friends, my partner, uh, a lot of lake swimming. I just did my final lake swim this week and it was freezing and probably mm. not a great call. I'm officially declaring <laughs> it over for the season. Um, I like that. I like like being transparent on like where your uh, capacity is, but then also the first piece I think is important of like, what if you just let that be true? Like you just let that happen. And I think that's true for a lot of us is again, we're we're trying to meet some type of social construct rules of like you work between nine and five or you work five days a week or whatever, whatever it is. And that doesn't work for the vast majority of people, um, especially people with, you know, any, any kind of neurodivergence. So uh, I like that. That's definitely a good one for, for self-care and self-love really. So mm -hmm. On the same dessert, sweet things, uh, what is your favorite thing about what you do? Oh, there are just so many. And I I wear too many hats. So I feel like every everything has its own pockets of joy. Um, I don't know. It's got to be... I feel like so much of my work is saying things that feel really obvious to me. And I feel like the number one feedback I get from people is like, I feel like I'm being given permission to do something that I, in my heart, knew <laughs> that I should be doing and wanted yeah. to be doing, but was somehow told by like our field, the constructs, capital S science, whatever that means, mm -hmm. you know, that like, this is not how you do the thing. Um yeah, I don't know. So I, I think that's like where the greatest joy shows up for me is being able to be in a space where I'm like, I don't know that I'm offering much. It doesn't feel like I'm offering much when I show up. But, uh, you know, I don't know, getting to connect with other people and then getting to exist in a space where people, I don't know, are, are giving themselves a little bit more permission and a little bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. Um to care about one another and let that be important first, I think is probably what what brings me the most joy in the work I get to do. I think that's great. And I and I'm gonna go back to you when you said uh you don't think you're doing much. I think you're doing a lot because I think just being yourself and like living into your truth, into your values and and allowing people to just be themselves is what we all need and a lot of people you know like you're just like yeah I'm just accepting you for who you are but there's a vast majority of people that don't do that and so don't discredit that because that's amazing plus Loki like you're amazing to listen to like your voice is so soothing that like I think 
there's probably a lot of people in your life that are like, yes, one or just keep talking. Like, we'll just listen to you forever. <laughs> that is such a kindness and such a healing thing to hear. I've gotten um, uh, sprinkles of like really negative feedback about my voice across time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's um, that's really tender. I appreciate that different yeah. perspective from maybe some yeah. of the things that I've allowed myself to hear. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. And it is, it is very genuine. I'm very glad I have my AirPod in because it's like, I usually, for everyone listening, I usually get very nervous doing these. And I think just the like soothingness of your voice has been very helpful today. So thank you. (laughs) We are at our nightcap. uh, So I like to ask, is there anything that I should have asked and I didn't or anything else that you want to mention? Oh my goodness, such an open-ended question. I struggle with those now, right? Because I feel like we could talk forever about all of these things and all sorts of other things. Well, there is the Sex ABA conference coming up, right? In January? There is. That's true. Oh my goodness. We just finished programming. We are moving from a two-day conference to a three-day conference this year because we have so much amazing, like... Oh, goodness. I am not going to talk your ear off for another hour about this, but trust that I could. I am so delighted by the things that people are bringing. Like, yeah, absolutely shining. So excited for it. Um, yeah, so that's going to be really beautiful. Just finished programming that. And I think uh, tickets should go on sale sometime this week, but also uh, forever a conference and every sort of event that I put on where it's like, if you can't afford the ticket cost, just email. There are open scholarships for just you know mm-hmm. anybody, anybody who wants to be there that can't be there. So tickets will probably be out by the time this gets released. When is the conference? It is January 26th through 28th. Do you have in-person or virtual hybrid? We're virtual only uh, with synchronous virtual options and also asynchronous virtual options. Yeah, but I am in a space where like my physical capacity, uh, just like health-wise, to travel and to host in person is pretty, pretty non-existent. So I don't know, people keep asking and I like, I would love a dream of a day where maybe we, we had an in-person something and also like the reality of just like, I'm um, existing in the world right now. It's probably not super feasible, but would 3000% be rooting for anybody else that put on a, an in-person something. I mean, I think it's it's still accessible for a lot of people to do the virtual one. Uh, I'm I'm glad that that's still an option um, across the board for like all the conferences because it used to be like, yeah, you had to hop on a plane and go stay at a hotel and and yeah. eat out, which I will eat out at restaurants every day, <laughs> but. It's expensive. So. It's really expensive. And we have attendees from all over the world at this point. And that is a really beautiful thing to me. Like the access increase to me feels like huge and like something I wouldn't ever want to lose. Where can listeners find more about you and your dissemination efforts? So uh, sexedcontinuinged.com and then the conference is at sexaba.com. Thank you. Thank you for coming. This was a really nice Saturday morning for me. I feel like I could go lounge for the rest of the day (laughs) with a cup of coffee. (laughs) Awesome. I support it. Everyone, thank you for sharing a bite with us. Uh, Please go follow Warner. Um, I will have all of their links in the show notes and also on my website. 
As always, you can find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or my website, rosiebx.com. If you enjoy the show, please help my dissemination efforts by leaving a rating and a review so others can find the show. And until our next meal, bye.